Uh, hey, everyone. So I'm very geeked out right now uh, to be sitting across a Zoom call from uh, Joe Ziemba and Brett Berg over at AGFA. Uh, Joe is the creative director and Brett is, is uh, responsible for theatrical sales, although I'm sure we'll get into this. They all wear many hats. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for making time for this today. Absolutely. Uh, I, I love talking to people who, who know what our label is. That's very special to us. <laughs> so anytime we get to do that, I like to, to do it. Yeah, uh, thank you. AGFA is my, one of my favorite things in the world to talk about. So anytime, I'm ready. Well, I, I've been, I've been uh, uh, prepping for this discussion for many years. So I know there's not an official tie, but back in 2000, let's call it eight or nine, I dragged my wife through Queens to go find the Troma Studios in New York uh, and knocked on the door and uh, some intern answered and I was like, can I take a tour? And they said, yeah, sure, come on in. So I got to, I've, I've had a fascination with low or no budget filmmaking as long as I've kind of been into film. And um, as I discovered, uh, I had to take a break for some work and some personal things in, in, in life. Just, I couldn't watch as many movies. And then 2018, I got back into it. And as I discovered what AGFA was and and what, what had been built, uh, I immediately fell in love with y'all. And I'm, uh, I'm complete on the Blu-rays you put out and have a number of the DVDs. And uh, I just, I, I'm a huge fan of yours. So it really means a lot to me this time. So thanks. Thank you. <laughs> That's, it's really <laughs> nice to hear. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. So let's just jump in. I mean, you know, I think the biggest question I have, and I think in, in my mind, one of the most interesting things to me is, just the size of the archive that y'all have been able to build uh, and just the access to the incredible films that you have that, that nobody else really would know about <laughs> or uh, potentially would, would definitely become lost if, if not for the work y'all are doing. So can you walk kind of through like the the, the coffee or, or late night bar discussions that led to the creation of ACVA and just kind of how that collection got built up a little bit? Yeah, I think we can. We weren't there for those discussions. So this is all before our time, but we know the stories so we can share those for sure. Um, I think um, something that has always uh, impressed me about Agfa, even before I was here, is about the evolution of it and how it changed and grew because it was a very small start. Um, it was pretty much started so that uh, Tim League and Carrie League, who are co-founders of the Alamo Drafthouse, could have a place to store their film prints that they had. They were quickly building up this collection. And so um, they started this nonprofit called AGFA so that there could be a place where all the prints could be housed. And it was kind of moving along that route for a long time and building up prints and trailers. And Sebastian <clears throat> Del Castillo, who is a head of film restoration at AGFA now is the sole employee at AGFA for, after being a projectionist for many years. And so, um, yeah, it just, uh, it was just growing a lot. And, and really it was just kind of a, a lending house. It was an archive, you know, for prints and for theatrical screenings. And that was, that was what AGFA was. That was like the entirety of the mission. And so um, I started at Alamo Drafthouse uh, almost 10 years ago as a, a designer and programmer. And um, I fell in love with AGFA immediately because um, just, just walking into the archive for the first time and seeing all these prints. And I just, I wanted to have a sleepover there and just hang out and look at all the prints and, and soak it all in. And so I did everything I could to get closer to AGFA and to work with AGFA as much as I could. And then um, we did a, a Kickstarter in 2016. Sebastian and I kind of put our heads together and thought, well, what if AGFA could be more? What if it wasn't just an archive and just a place where people could rent prints, but it was actually getting the rights to these movies and restoring them and releasing them? And what could we do that? Is that possible? Is that a dream we could follow? And it turns out we could. So um, I pretty much pitched the idea to Tim about, you know, this is what I would like to do at AGFA. And over the next four years or so, I transitioned out of Alamone into AGFA full time. And at the beginning of that, we did a Kickstarter to do um, to get a film scanner so that we could preserve the Zodiac Killer, which is the first movie that we did, which is part of the Something Weird archive, and really it like took off immediately after that. And at, right after we got the scanner, and Sebastian and I started working on Zodiac Killer, all of these things started falling into place. Um, you know, we had already had the experience of shipping out prints and taking care of that, so we thought what if we could do that for restorations? What if we could have DCPs, like a library of DCPs and not just prints? And so that's when um, Brett came on and worked his magic. And we started to get all these labels, partner labels, um, basically like Blu-ray labels that had this huge archive of films that they had released on home video, but they also had theatrical rights that weren't being explored because that's not what their company did. 
Um, so we had that experience. So we kind of turned that around and built that into what it is today. Wow, super interesting. Um, uh, I, I've seen uh, Zodiac Killer. Uh, the, you know, one of the things that struck me was the amount of care that went into, let's just say the supplements that went along with it and kind of getting into the background of the story and, and the, uh, the director of that movie who was really kind of a wild man, but in the best ways and wanted to put, show this film as a way of catching the actual Zodiac killer. Um, do you, you know, that's the thing that I think has always impressed me so much about the label is you're not just preserving the films and you're not just restoring them, but it's a criterion release of these movies, right? I mean, like it's, a, it's like you're getting the special features, you're getting like the whole immersive experience into these movies that were shot for $20,000, $30,000, maybe, you know, 50,000. Uh, is that something that was born from y'all's love of kind of being a collector uh, and just wanting to see that stuff or, um, or what? Yeah. Brett, I see you pointing. I think you're, you're talking on mute, but I want to hear sorry. what you're saying. I, sorry. <laughs> I, I, I was going to say yes in Joe's case. He has a lot to say about that. <laughs> oh, cool. Oh, yeah. And that's a really nice compliment, by the way, saying that about our releases. That's really, you know, we would never ex expect to hear that kind of compliment. So thank you. Um, but yeah, I think um, everything that we do comes from a place of what we what would we like to see? You know, I mean, we are, are such uh, all of us are such collectors and um, treasure hunters. Um, you know, that's like the basics of our lives from Brett working at video stores for many, many years to me working on Bleeding Skull and collecting movies for you know two decades. Um, it's just something that's kind of entwined in the DNA of everyone at AGFA. So I think when we approach, when we first approached home video, I mean, it's very intimidating and it still is to this day because, you know, there's a lot going on out there. There's a lot of incredible companies and incredible talent going into all these releases. So to us, it's like we do the best that AGFA can do with our team because we are a super small team and we all wear a million hats. So um, at the end of the day, I just want to produce something that I would like to purchase. Like, you know, if the Zodiac Killer came out on Blu-ray, what would I like to see? And that's kind of how we go from there. On well, top, that, okay. uh, yeah, on top of, uh, you know, also we can't talk enough about how something weird intertwined with Agfa in a certain moment to create an impetus for all these lovely things to happen. So that's why we're so, I think that's why to this day, we're so invested in the Something Weird video legacy is because it was so defining, I think for Joe from just like a creative perspective from his movie upbringing. And then me just from someone who whose video store had all those releases. And it's just, I don't know, it hit us in a very personal way. And that's, that's a lot about what Agfa's success is, is the personal intertwining with all these fantastical objects we're able to rescue from the void, basically. I, I was lucky enough to be able to speak with Lisa uh, about a month ago now. That actually, that episode's dropping next Friday um, when we're recording. So by the time this airs, it'll already be there anyways. Um, but uh, it was amazing to hear not only her love for, for what she does, uh, but also the stories about Mike and kind of how something weird was built. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm really happy you brought them up. I was gonna ask you about them. Um, that seems like a label that has always done it for the right reasons. Uh, it, <laughs> and there's some awesome stories about Mike early on, just uh, trying to find the rights. And if he couldn't, just going for it. <laughs> and getting some crazy phone calls from people that are like sons and grandsons of rights holders and, you know, as they find it out. It sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. So yeah, th that, that's a great tie-in. So one of the ones that I saw early on that I would have never have seen without y'all uh, was Bad Pussy. And I have to talk about that because as I, the, the, the description of the movie made me laugh. So I bought it and I was like, yeah, I'll probably enjoy this. <laughs> and I put it on and I was like, what is happening? And then about 15 minutes in or something, I realized that like, I was loving this. And like, I started like laughing really hard. Um, and I just, I got fascinated by the fact that this movie was made, but like I'm using Bad Pussy, I wanna talk about that specifically, but also kind of as a, as a way of like a metaphor for Agfa in my mind. Um, because how did, first of all, how did you even find that this film existed? And when you did find it, like, you know, like what was that realization like that this thing is something that you could put out? Was that just like a euphoric moment that like you get access to this movie now? Uh, does it have rights holders? Like, is there, yeah, just anything you can talk about that project, would, I would love to hear about. Well, it's funny, Bad Pussy is a totem title for us uh, as well, 
for many reasons. But uh, again, something weird is the nexus is the reason why. But Joe, I think, had seen it before. I had seen it for the first time when it was like through our scanner. But Joe has okay. actually seen it before. Yeah. Yeah. So and I'm so glad we're talking about something weird because, as Brett said, um, just such a huge influence on everything that we do. And to this day, I, I really can't believe that we get to do what we do with something weird. I cannot believe we're part of that legacy because for me, something weird was um, like a, a film school for me. And especially when I was young, when I was a teenager and in college. And so Bat Pussy in particular was something that I read about um, when I was probably 16 in Something Weird's catalog. And I was just blown away. I've always been drawn to ripoff movies. I always liked, you know, at that time, I really liked Three Dev Adam, the Turkish Spider-Man movie. And I thought that stuff was just blowing my mind at the time. So I thought, well, there's like this exploitation version of Batman or Batgirl or Batwoman or whatever it is. And, um, but I couldn't, I couldn't see it because I was a kid. So I was like a teenager. Um, so I was never able to see Bat Pussy during the big flood of something weirds like on, on me as a teenager, because I could only see like the Ed Wood movies, the Doris Wishman ones, because those were the ones that were, you know, I was able to see at video stores or order. Um, so I actually did not see Bat Pussy until I moved to Austin. I was working for the Alamo Draft House, and probably like the second week I was in there at the time, we were all in this little tiny office. And Lars and Nilsson and I were talking, and Lars is now a programmer at AFS, the Austin Film Society head programmer there. And we were talking about something weird because it was in the air that this was maybe going to happen. And Lars leaned over to me and said, have you seen Bat Pussy yet? And I was like, oh, I would love to see Bat Pussy. I've just never had a copy of it. And he was like, go to Isla Video this weekend and rent it and watch it and then report back to me on Monday. And so that's exactly what I did. I rented it from Isla Video. I watched it. And um, I wasn't prepared for Bat Pussy at all because it it was not at all what I expected. And I I think I had the same reaction you did, which is. I found myself enjoying it so much because of the reasons why you're not supposed to enjoy it. It's just two people sitting on a bed and yelling at each other. And why would you want to watch that? But it's incredibly entertaining. And then like the icing on the cake is just uh, bat pussy showing up like or Batwoman or whatever they call her. You know, it's like, it's like her showing up is just like an, a bonus you know, that she's even in the movie. Um, yeah. So from there, I mean, it, it was always in the back of my mind that Bat Pussy would like, Seb and I used to joke about it. Like, what if we released Bat Pussy? It'd be hilarious. Like prank the world and release Bat Pussy. And then yeah. as soon as we got the scanner, we did Zodiac. We went one of the times that we, like the second time we visited Lisa at the Something Weird Archive. Um, she's like, and here's the printed Bat Pussy. And we were like, oh, maybe we should ask her if she'd be interested in doing that. And then so we just were like, Lisa, what do you think? Would you want to release Bad Pussy? And she was like, oh my God, yes. Like, let's do it immediately. Let's get it in the, in the running. So it was like the third release that we yes. did or something. It's yes, like, the third, yeah. the third release. It, it, it marked a very specific moment in time for me in my head because it spawned this years long conversation that we've been having internally about the gray pouponing of... <laughs> this entire world, uh, making it something that's attractive and tasty and fun. Um, you know, it's just mustard, but it's like, how fun can you get with mustard? And so I think, I think, uh, I think what we're doing is, is, is proving that there's an actual connoisseurship of things that people thought were just total, just garbage, just yeah. nothing, to, nothing to even consider. And when I saw Bad Pussy for the first time also, it, to me, it read like an early Warhol film. Oh, yeah. Because the early Warhol films are all just people sitting in a bedroom yelling at each other. And it just felt like a continuum of this insane art universe. And it also happened to have like bad pussy in it. (laughs) (laughs) And my favorite part is that she just leaves. Like, the, like, like she comes in the room and then just leaves and like, there's no resolution. So there's really no point for her even being there. But um, I'm well, there, use that. there is a resolution and you will see it on our reissue <laughs> Blu-ray because we yes. found it. We found another print. So there's an ending now. Yes. I love it. There's two I, films. I've been, I've been lobbying hard, but I don't think it'll happen that our first 4K UHD release will be Bad Pussy. <laughs> <laughs> That's the big joke that we always have, but yeah. 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 I mean, we'll get into Vinegar Syndrome Partners in a second, but you know they did that with Sex World and that was a huge seller for them. So maybe there's something to it. Um, uh, what was I going to say? Yeah, there's the, well, the, okay. So that's amazing. Thank you so much for that backstory. Um, and I hope that, yeah, I'm so glad to hear that's getting a reissue. Are y'all going back all the early titles and doing a reissue over time? 
Yeah, we are. Yeah. And, and the reason for that is that we originally started with a distributor and then we switched to OCN, which I'm sure we'll talk yeah. about. Um, so that all of like when the stock is run out from all of those old releases, that's when we'll reissue them. So yeah, starting this year, we're doing uh, three this year. Great. Yeah, because the scalping prices are way too high on some of that. So I'm glad they're getting yeah. the reissue. Which I'm glad no, floored us the fact that the, our titles were scalped because two years ago, you wouldn't be caught dead holding bad pussy. And then suddenly people are emailing us four times a week. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really wild. I had, yeah. I had to put a review for, I think I put it under the second Twilight movie for bad pussy because at that time, Letterboxd didn't have, they didn't allow adult content. So, I think for, for about a year or so, my review for Bad Pussy was under the Twilight movie, like Breaking Dawn or something. Uh, and then finally they allowed adult content, so I was able to put it in, there in its rightful spot. Um, but uh, that always made me happy that somebody scrolling looking at a Twilight Dawn movie would stumble across that. But anyways, um, uh, so, okay, there's another thing here that I wanna tap into before we get into the distribution side, because I think that's a really interesting topic as well. Um, have you all both seen that movie Effects? with uh, the, the um, Sabine, he's an actor in it. The movie that we released, Effects? Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Hmm. Okay, yeah. I mean, I, I hate to just assume, I feel like I should at least ask for it. I don't know, I'm sure you all have seen them all. But, oh, uh, no, yeah, I mean, we, yeah, of course we've seen everything, <laughs> yeah. It's, okay. But it is good to ask, because sometimes the answer with me is no, I haven't seen it yet, sadly. I'm coming at this from such a different perspective than everybody, be, like a lot of our, team members are already very conversant in the something weird canon for example and i'm always playing catch up and i find it really liberating actually to see some of these things for the first time right after sebastian's finished the restoration and uh, suddenly like i get a chance to see the 4k sheep freak and really understand why people got excited about it as a yeah. phenomenon in the first place so yeah. That's, that's part of what I really love about our own label is that I get a chance to see these things for the first time after people have uh, you know, been obsessing over them for years and suddenly I get to participate in their obsession. That, that's kind of fun. <laughs> I, I do want to talk about the curation part because that's one thing I'm re really fascinated about. Before I get into that, I want to quickly just ask about effects because I always mm. use that as an example of, I don't know that I've ever seen a movie that stretches what you can do on a small budget more than effects from like a storytelling perspective. Like there's at least three layers in that movie, right? As they continue to kind of pull out. And I don't want to give too much away if, in case anybody hasn't seen it yet. But I mean, talk about a well-crafted, like very intelligent script that just happens to be a low budget film. Uh, and I just love that that's in there. Do you all know anything about how you found that? Or was that all, like, yeah, any, any background on that one? Yeah, yeah, of course. So. Um... I uh, program and host a weekly series at Alamo Draft House called Terror Tuesday here in Austin. And um, back in uh, 20, let's see, this would be 2016, I, we had what I thought was the only print of effects in the Agfa archive. And I couldn't find the rights holders for it, but I really liked the movie and I wanted to play it. So I just ran the print. And then um, about a week and a half later, we got a voicemail on the Alamo system from John Harrison, who, you know, plays... Uh, the lead role and did the score and produced the movie. And um, he was really nice um, and just wanted to know, Hey, I see that you played our movie effects and I'm curious where you got the elements. Where did you get the print? And so I called him back and he was so nice. And I, it's like everybody in that scene from Pittsburgh is so nice. They're such nice people. Like everyone that was like in George Romero's kind of grouping of people at that time, just, God, they're so nice. So anyway, he called and, you know, you're expecting the worst when you get a call like that. Um, but he was so nice and just wanted to know about Agfa and the print. And, um, I got off the phone with him. He didn't want any money. He's like, don't worry about it. We just wanted to know. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And then I, I went back to our office and asked Sebastian, like, I just got off the phone with John Harrison. And, um, should we ask him to, if we want to put out effects? Like, why not? Right. We should just ask him. And so I called him back the next day and asked him and he was like, yeah, it's, you know, there's never been a Blu-ray. So let's talk about it. And it came together really quickly after that. And, um, that was right about, yeah, yeah. So, so it, it was right about the time when we realized that like, oh, this is how this works. Like it doesn't just have to be movies from something weird or things that we have in the archive, but we can find the filmmakers. And I mean, we had no idea how to do this prior to that, so. Well, that's a great lead in then. Cause so early on it was, um, I mean, the ones we've talked about, um, Zodiac Killer, then it was Effects and then it was Bad Pussy. And then 
early on was also uh, Sword in the Claw, which is amazing. Um, one of the things that's always jumped out to me that I, I get excited. So I, when I started, a lot of these movies I hadn't heard of before, but I just, I knew I loved that kind of the, that world of like low kind of no budget filmmaking. So I was excited. But as I got deeper in, I actually got more and more excited each title that I put in from y'all because I feel like there's, there's a common element and I have the way that I describe y'all's movies, but I was curious if there's a common element for y'all in, in what you look for, or if it's just more of a gut feel thing uh, as, as what's going to become an Agfa release. Um, I would say it's 80% gut feel, 20% opportunity. Mm-hmm. I think that's about oh. right. And I, I also think it's, uh, Brett, is you kind of articulated this, it's um, Agfa is about making something out of nothing. And I think that's kind of a guiding light for what we do. It's like using every resource to us available to make something happen. And I think that 80-20 is, is pretty apt. I think that's a good, good way to put it because it's like, what do we have and what do we love and how can we bring that together and, and share it with the world? Interesting. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. But there's always something that's either like mischievous or something that's unexpected or something that there's always like something in these movies where there there's like an exciting quality to them. I haven't been able to put a great vocabulary around it yet, but I think that's the thing that I want more and more people to discover y'all for, because when you dive into this world, like the worst thing you can do is sit through a movie that really is not going anywhere and is low budget. Right. (laughs) But like, it just feels like, you know, I guess there's kind of a question in this. How much do you have to sift through to get to the ones that you get excited about? Well, it's, a, it's it has to do with what materials are on hand at any time. Also, what's licensable. But I think a lot of what you're actually responding to is what I would, I'll fucking get out the trumpet and say, our world-class restoration work. Um, I think that the seeing the work through the lens of the time machine, the perfect time machine that is modern film restoration, where you can reach out and touch the, the era, practically. Yeah, right. Like, it, that really helps, <laughs> I think. I don't know. Just, yeah. Just oh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think it's like what you're saying, Brett, when you seeing these things for the first time for you with the mm-hmm. restorations and preservations, it's really kind of like revelatory. Um, I also think that our appetite for discovery is voracious and never ending and everybody on the team, like that's, that's what we do. You know, I mean, that's what I do and that's what I look for. I mean, every, everything that I inhale when it comes to genre films, it's going somewhere, you know, it's either like research for bleeding scholars. Oh, can we release that with the AGFA or can I program it? Oh, can I watch it just for fun? It's like, everything's kind of going into this machine that we've built and um, we love it. Like I love it so much and I never grow tired of it because we have, we have such, such a great, a great team, team and everything's like really positive. And it, it kind of like leads into the nonprofit mission. I think, I think if it was just a strictly a for-profit business, it wouldn't have quite the same feel, but knowing that the work that we're putting in is actually, I don't want to sound like we're on a high horse, but it's actually making the world better in a way. It's like what we can do to help the, you know, people are happy. Like you buy our releases and you watch them and it makes you happy. And like, it makes us happy too. So I think that's a big part of, um, you know, choosing the movies. It's like, how can we make mm-hmm. people happy? How can we make people enjoy this and, and feel the same love that we do through the release? There's, there's another layer too of what makes us pick certain things is that be, um, more than one of us has experience in actual film programming for an IRL venue. I've, I've done it for years in LA and Joe's done it in Austin, in Austin and Alicia's done it in Austin and Ivan has done it in Austin and Seattle. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's just uh, how an audience takes to something. We sometimes we put that into account, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> Definitely. Um, because we're adept at sitting in a room with the audience during the show, we can hear their beats we can see the movie's beats and we can hear their beats as an audience. You can just like watch them get into something. So we kind of, it's all subconscious. We don't write any of this down on paper, but I think it does influence some of our decisions. That, sure. um, the, the exp- yeah, no, that, that uh, um, I was kind of thinking about, it's interesting. Uh, there's a guy that we just spoke with who was like the world's leading um, uh, silent film accompanist. Mm-hmm. And he, he'll just go, his name is Ben Modell and he'll go around and he'll oh, like, yeah. oh yeah. I, I know his stuff, yeah. 
I, I, okay. I've uh, spoken to him before. He's cool. I like him. Yeah. Oh, super nice guy. Uh, but it's interesting. I was just noticing this parallel in the way that he describes his performances because he goes and he'll play in front of kids or he'll play on a Saturday night uh, in front of, you know, like, um, oh, what's a good example? Uh, like Sunrise. Or then he'll play like a, like a silent comedy in front of kids. And so, like, he has to constantly adapt to the room and the audience. And that's just something that you have to, like, you have to do that through experience. There's no way to, like, do that in a book, right? So the fact that you all have that background, uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. Like, of course, it's going to help in your curation. Because you can almost hear the silence in the room if the film sucks or something, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, also, 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 um, it's almost like we curated each other because Joe and I knew each other previous to AGFA and then Sebastian and Ivan in Seattle, I believe, knew each other previous to AGFA as well as Laird from Alamo and Tommy from previously from Alamo now with the Beacon in Seattle. So there's, I don't know. And then Alicia was just a part of our circle at Alamo as well. So yeah, yeah. it's, it's, it's what we do is we just keep picking. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned that you have this nonprofit status and you know, one of the things if you think about like a nonprofit, one of the first thing that comes to mind is the board of directors and y'all have a pretty freaking amazing board of directors. Um, you know, I just, just reading from the website, uh, obviously Tim and Carrie Lee, uh, PTA, Anna Biller, Frank Henenlotter, Nicholas Winning Refn, Riza, uh, Lisa Petrucci. So like, as I go through these names, like, I'm curious, what is their relationship with y'all? Like, is it, you know, uh, is it, you know, quarterly you have a meeting and you kind of chat, are they, are they hands-on? Like, what is that kind of relationship with your board? I think it did. Oh, go ahead, Brad. Well, I was just going to say it's, it's probably case by case. Yes. You know? I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. It depends on the person. Um, someone like, you know, Lisa obviously is, is basically a huge part of what we do and we're constantly meeting with her and talking about the ag fund, something weird releases. That's an ongoing thing. Um, Frank Kennenlauter is actually really involved too with, um, you know, helping with the something weird releases, even when he's not a part of them or doing commentaries, you know, we run things by him and um, get his opinions on things. Um, but yeah, uh, but I think that's about the extent of it. It's it's mostly like, um, you know, we check in when we need to and if if we need anything or, or things like that. Yeah. Oh, and Frank, you know, Frank is ride or die, which is nice. <laughs> yeah, he's the best, the best. It, okay, just just as strictly just out of personal interest, because I've been watching Hen and Lauder movies for at least 20 years. How is he like in person? Is he, he just seems like he's such a gem. Oh, yes. I, I, I got to meet him once about 10 years ago, and it was it was an absolute treat. And Joe's had the, the great experiences with many. Oh, yeah. I just um, it's another really it's that kind of like working with Lisa at something right. It's so surreal to me. I mean, I never would have thought like as a 15 year old, like you're going to be hanging out in the director of Basket Case's apartment watching 3D Blu-rays and having him do commentary on them while you're watching them. You know, like I, it, it's mind blowing. And Frank is so genuinely, he's so knowledgeable. He's such a historian. He has so much, like so much knowledge in him, but he's so down to earth and so kind and generous with his time. And just, uh, he's the best, you know I mean? It's like, you can't say anything about him that has not been hundred percent amazing while we've been working with him. He's just super great. And, um, yeah, like the, the first couple of times that yeah, I visited that him in New York, York. Sebastian yeah. came with a couple of times. Um, it's just, it's so incredible walking in his apartment and seeing Belial and, you know, it's, it's unbelievable. It's like Disney World, you know, it's really cool, but he, he's the best. Yeah, I, I would love to see him with a, with a Hollywood budget one day, but anyways, I, I, I don't know. We'll see, but um, just to see what he can do. He's such a good talent as well, in addition to all that. But, okay, so all, the, all that we've talked about so far um, yeah, not to sound like cynical with this, but it doesn't matter if the products don't sell, right? Uh, and so one of the things I've been intrigued at is this relationship with OCN, at least on, from what I can tell, seems to be a really good sort of move for y'all. It feels like the products are moving uh, pretty, pretty well. Yes. Um, has that been a good move? Is it, is it real? <laughs> is my perception real? Oh, yeah. And I think um, to clarify, yeah, we do have to sell. I mean, it, even though it's a nonprofit, like, you know, we do have to make, <laughs> we have to make enough to go back into the company so that we can leave the lights on and we can get paid. So that's, you know, um, everything goes back into AGFA. But um, the really interesting thing to me about OCN, and this is like a big development in AGFA history, is the reason why it came about is when Alicia Coombs joined the team. And Alicia is uh, executive director and she's like co-leader of the team with me. 
And so we co-direct AGFA. And Alicia started out as just a volunteer helping out in the trailer archive. And then Sebastian and I discovered that she did accounting and she knew something about business too. So not only did she handle film and she was a huge fan of something weird, but she also had a business side. And, you know, I am not, I'm the exact opposite of a business person. I'm not good at it. I'm horrible at math. Like that's not something, that's not any skill that we had. So Sebastian and I at the time were like being asked by the board to do these like PNL reports and spreadsheets. And we're like, I, I, I have no idea what this is. Like, I cannot do that. I can't physically do this. So when, immediately when we found out that Alicia was uh, not only knowledgeable about that stuff, but good at it. And also between jobs, because she was kind of uh, doing some part-time stuff at the time, immediately we were like, we have to get Alicia as part of the team. And so when Alicia came on, it was like night and day overnight, overnight it completely, completely changed, changed because she had such a, a very specific idea about how the business should be run and how exacting it should be. And, and like it brought everything together. So like I was freed up to work on creative stuff. Sebastian was freed up to work on restoration. And then Alicia just came in and like took care of all the stuff that we really needed. So at the time, that was when we discovered that like, okay, if we want home video to be successful, there are certain things that need to happen. And in order to do that, like, we need to look at how these are being distributed and how the, how this works and how we're producing them. And so um, the thing with vinegar syndrome and OCN was kind of in the air for a while. Um, at the time, it was just something they were thinking about doing like partner labels and they had never done it. And so we just decided one day we looked at kind of like the numbers they had given us and, and the agreements and we're like, let's just do it. Like it's time to move. Let's make this happen. And so Alicia was the one that drove that entire process and, and got us with OCN and kind of made, made it happen. And so we were the first label to be one of the partner partner labels. And it, it was such a huge difference overnight. It was just not only like the split in terms of royalties and things, but just the, how, how much easier it became and how much fun it was, you know, home video was always, it's, it's basically at the end of the day in terms of home video production, it's Sebastian and I. Um, so he handles all the restoration. I do everything else. So um, it was really hard. And so now it's a lot easier because we have that support and that experience that OCN has to bring to the table. And it's probably one of the best decisions we've made in this like new version of ACFA was to uh, get hooked up with them. Yeah, it's, it's really excellent. Mm -hmm. oh, great to hear. Um, and that's a big chunk of the business. I don't know if it's half or whatever, but there's then the other half is the theatrical side and like people actually renting the prints and, and these, these restorations being shown. So Brett, I was curious if, you know, to, uh, like who's showing these? Is this film festivals? Is this people throwing, you know, big parties? Like, like who's showing these prints and, and like where, where are you going to get them into theaters? Because I, I, it makes me so happy that these, these movies are being shown in theaters. Mm -hmm. um, uh, okay, so let me see. How should I, how should I tell this? Um, the, the clients are everything from, like what you said, just someone throwing a party um, in a space to a thousand seat venue in a major town like uh, art houses, multiplexes to a smaller degree, um, art spaces, DIY places, museums, schools, um, uh, and festivals. We're starting to do that more too. Um, uh, virtual, whenever, you know, when the world went virtual <laughs> in 2020, we actually, we didn't do it for a while. And then we kind of tipped out into doing that later. Um, there's a there's a variety of different places where you can show stuff and we're, we're very good at finding where the coins are and just like picking up the coins. And uh, as far as how it all came together, uh, Agfa as a label kickstarted around the time that our other label partners like Arrow and Severin and Vinegar Syndrome, they really turned on the burn around the same time, I would say. So in addition to having the home video rights to put out all these movies, um, our labels also acquired theatrical rights on most of the movies. And so they didn't really have a mechanism to get them out into art houses, say, because they didn't really know the people who ran the art houses. And because Agfa was already lending to these people, they just became our client base to, to offer restorations to and, and, uh, and that's that. <laughs> and it kind of exploded from there. I think we also need to put, I want to point out at least, um, I want to point out how important Brett is to this working because before, in my opinion, like looking back at it as a programmer on that side of the exhibition side and how difficult it was to book things and how 
impersonal it could be at times with distributors. In my opinion, Brett has completely revolutionized the way that people can understand how to work with distributors and labels because Brett, you're so personal about it and you put a touch on it. Like you're so knowledgeable and you share that knowledge and you're not, you just, you just want to help and you just want to make it happen. And you've completely changed, I think, the way things work. And I think that's the key to like why Agfest Theatrical has gotten so big so quickly is because of how you work it and, and how you work with people and how good you are at it. And not only that, but your programming background and you know how to place these movies, you know how to suggest things to people. And um, that to me is like, yeah, that's why. <laughs> that's why Agfa has been successful on that side is because of Brett. Um, these things are like bands. Yeah. So we're just... We're a band that formed by accident and <laughs> we're, we're rocking the best we can, I suppose, which is such an antiquated fucking thing to say because rock is dead. But um, that's how we have to think about these things. <laughs> you know. What band are you? Are you a punk band? Are you what, what band would you be? Uh, uh, you're not <laughs> not really like like the Led Zeppelin type, maybe. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, in, in my mind, we're like, yes. But not everybody on the team is a punk rock, I mean, a prog rock fan. So I'm not going to presume that everyone thinks we're like, yes. I think we're like a prog rock band where every person is from a different band wearing like ill-fitting clothes that are not, you know, there's like a, a fake new waiver, a fake synth pop, a fake punk, but they're all in this like crazy prog rock band, like forced together, you know, to do, to do good. So it's Roxy music. There you go. We're Roxy music. Um, Okay, wow. Uh, so um, we've got the distribution side. We've covered the theatrical side. Um, you know that this is the this is the life of Agfa. I think the, the big thing I'm curious about now is what is next for y'all. So you talked about kind of the new Agfa. Um, what's the new new Agfa? Because I have to imagine that y'all are there's a lot of excitement over there right now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that. Um... Well, when the pandemic hit, that was the end of the old Agfa because we had to completely pivot our business overnight because yeah. our, our business was like 90% theatrical at that point. So one of the things that we did is like we sat down for months as a team and, and actually had conversations about how can we survive? Like, how can we make sure that Agfa doesn't leave the planet? And the way that we did it was a, a big focus on home video because we had that placement with OCN right before the pandemic hit. Um, and that kicked off right away. Um, but then the other part of it was that Sebastian is like, <laughs> I, I know I'm like gushing a lot about our team members, but um, Sebastian in 2016 had never touched a scanner, had never done color grading, had never done restoration work. And in like five or six short years, he's become one of the top people like in the entire, in terms of like an indie industry and not studios. He's incredible. And that is reflective of the other part of the business, which no one knows about, which is the lab work. And so mm -hmm. uh, a large part of the business now is the restoration work that Sebastian does for uh, other companies and other labels. So in addition to all the work that he does for our home video releases, he's also working nonstop on uh, a lot of releases that you see that are you know out with other labels as well as with studios. Um, so there's a lot, a uh, big chunk of that is what we do now. And that was brand new when the pandemic started. It was something that we had to do and it ended up being, oh, like Sebastian's really good at it and he loves doing it. So it worked out really well. Oh, interesting. Do you, is there like one film you had mentioned that people would be surprised if they knew that it was done through y'all's lab? Uh, well, I'm, uh, one release of ours that um, I want to help more people about is The Leather Boys which mm -hmm. came out last June, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's, a, it's, it's just a great movie. It's, it's always shocking to me that we can get to release those two, just like solid fucking movies sometimes. And that's, that's, that's really one of them directed by Sidney J. Fury. And yes, he later went on to do things like Superman 4. But this is this prime 60s British kitchen sink melodrama about... Um, a guy who got married too young and gets into a biker gang and it's, it's LGBT centric and it's very shocking for the time because at the time it was illegal to be gay in Britain. So it's, uh, it's, it's pretty important to me. And so Sebastian's work on it is absolutely phenomenal. Black and white scope, 60s, it looks like that, so good. 
yeah, when I first popped that in after he had done the restoration, that was the only time I ever thought like, this looks like it could be out on Criterion. Like this looks like a Criterion disc to me. And I, I don't want to sound like I'm tooting Agva's horn. I'm tooting Sebastian's horn. I'm like saying how amazing he is and the work that he does. Well, I'll toot your horn. I mean, look, this is why I'm so glad to be speaking to y'all. Cause like, I, you know, this is the thing that I've noticed. I feel like I, uh, it's very exciting for me as a collector, but also somebody who just loves movies. Like that's the reason I'm collecting is that like, you know, I feel like we're in this era right now where film is kind of getting an even playing ground a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like it's easier to access more obscure titles. Uh, people are getting a little bit smarter about how to market obscure titles and like how to kind of position them in a way that people will give, give them a chance. Um, and I feel like, you know, it, it, to, to pick up a copy of Leather Boys or to pick up an Arrow movie or to pick up a Vinegar Syndrome movie or a Criterion, like the difference is not really there anymore. Mm. I mean, even if you can talk about genre of film and all that kind of stuff, sure. But like in terms of the experience of watching it, there's not really that big of a difference anymore. And that's been really fun for me that there's, it's bad for my wallet, but it's been really fun for me just somebody who likes to experience all this stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, the 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 true joy of seeing Doris Wishman on the Criterion channel, that's something. Oh. Yeah, seeing our restorations on that, that was we still talk about that. It's so crazy. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, okay. Uh, are there, do you, do you ever have any plans that you can talk about anyways that, that are for other lines, you know, other sub labels, so to speak under Agfa or uh, any particular era of, of, you know, of the world or, or era of films that you're going to focus on or anything there that just people can kind of get excited about around what's coming next? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, we're never going to have any sublabels. We just use the designation of like Agfin something weird or Agfin bleeding skull. It's all one to us. Um, because I think in the past we've noticed that sublabels are just seem to fizzle out a little bit. So it's all one. It's all under one roof. But anyway, uh, in terms of what's next for home video, um, this year, 2022 is kind of a transition year for us because I think the last few years we tried a lot of things and we wanted to see what worked. And so I think you can expect starting in 2023, um, we're going to really go wild. Like um, it, everything's going to like this year is kind of like we're getting ready for it. And um, this year we'll also have our first box sets are going to be this year. Um, but from here on out, we're increasing everything. Um, it's just um, we're, we're increasing it to the max as far as we can go without like keeling over, you know. So um, I think like next year in 2023, we have 17 releases set so far, which is like, you know, it started out in 2020, there were um, seven, seven or eight. Um, and then it quickly ramped up this year, we have 14 next year, we have 17. So it just keeps going and going and going and getting bigger and bigger. And I think the ambition that we have keeps growing too, because we're really serious about focusing on what works. And also that idea that I mentioned earlier about creating something from nothing. So we're really excited to you know, for instance, with something weird, um, we have so many ideas on how to package the something weird library together. And a lot of it's happening in the next two years, like all these new ideas that are finally coming to fruition and lots of sequels for things that we've done already. Um, so there's going to be a lot more of that. And yeah, I think um, it's just going to be a lot bigger and a lot more. And I think that there's always going to be that outsider DIY feel to what we do, but I also think we're um, stepping up a little bit in terms of, you know, stuff that's coming up, a little bigger titles that are on the way and moving into some areas that we haven't released yet. Like there's a couple of documentaries that we're really excited about um, that we preserved, um, things like that. So um, there's a, just a lot, there's a lot coming and I'm so excited, I'm ready. Like I'm so ready for it. And then in theatrical, Brett, I mean, sure you can talk about that too. Oh, well, the the, the one big success that stands out to me in 2022 so far is Thrilling Bloody Sword, which is talk about making something out of nothing. Uh, <laughs> I had not heard of this film before it came our way. Uh, Joe had seen it and then contacted Justin at Golden Ninja Video, a new label, which is doing great work. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're, about to, they're about to put out the Canadian classic Skip Tracer. Very excited about that. Um, and it just, it's a movie that came, it, 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 it floated onto my desk and I didn't really know what to do with it at first. I didn't treat it with the reverence that I should treat something that's a runaway success. <laughs> but I actually watched the thing like 
my first viewing was not really a viewing. It was like a half paid attention thing. And then I watched it again, totally understood that it would be a big audience movie, meaning it's got enough to keep the audience not bored the whole time, which is very, very important. Very important with theatrical. Don't bore them. Uh, Because they came all the way out to your theater to see it. So don't bore them. Uh, And Thrilling Bloody Sword, not boring. Not for a second. It takes seven or eight screeching halt turns within the first 10 minutes um so it's a it's a taiwanese shaw brothers-esque flash gordon 1980-esque dog pile of it of, of question mark like i don't even know what the fuck to call it do you have any words for this joe i, I it's hard to talk about this movie. um i thought of it as like uh it's like masters of the universe and the shaw brothers colliding during like an acid trip that's what it reminded me of <laughs> yeah complete with uh funk score mm-hmm. oh yeah <laughs> and uh it's scope well it's very colorful lots of reds and blues splashed all over it and the idea of getting people after being dormant for for a year and change or longer people need something to get their ex- audiences excited about what is the discovery factor that agfa can provide to the venue that then the venue can then provide to the audience and thrilling bloody sword is tops in my book because it's it's fun stupid doesn't last too long and you remember it with like all key things you know yeah it's so true just to go back to alamo draft shots for a second i for for years we saw um team america on july 4th mm-hmm. and saw um the um we did a new year's party one time they used to have these um uh sort of like sing-alongs uh at new year's eve uh and then um uh, weird Wednesdays. Uh, I saw a few of the Weird Wednesday showings, and yeah, like there's really nothing better than seeing some of these uh, with a group of people that love it as well and are having a good time. Like it's kind of a trend. Like it's a totally different experience. It makes the movie really stick in your memory in ways that it can't. You can't really compare it. Yeah, and with Thrilling Bloody Sword, no one has seen it in the theater before. So, and anyone who goes out to see it will be seeing it with a crowd of 99% the people in the room have not seen it before, and that's very special. Yeah, totally. Agree. Yeah, everyone's experiencing that one. Has like, what is it? They say it's like babies and and evil wizards and. Uh, <laughs> anyways, um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. The, the description, even on IMDb alone, is uh, is is pretty amazing. So, uh, people should check that out. Uh, when is that hitting theaters? Uh, now, uh, it's not really in an organized fashion. It's it's picking up steam, word of mouth wise. I would say we have like fourteen or fifteen theaters in the next several months. Great. all over the internationally that's Great. that's the fun thing about this too is that part of my job is to reach out to venues in europe in asia and south america and uh that's that's pretty cool to to have to know what's going on in in like lisbon <laughs> when it comes to like weird fucked up movies i i don't know i enjoy that part of it the Nordic countries are really big into horror and like just kind of genre films, right? Like Finland, Norway, these kind. Somehow Finland, somehow we have a disproportionate amount of clients in Finland as to all the other countries in Europe. I'm not really sure why we have so many Finnish clients. I, I love them all. They're into some really tasty stuff. Um, the funny thing about the, 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 the Europe bookings and the U.S. bookings is that it's a completely different set of movies that they get excited about. Okay. And, it, and it's hard to predict who will be excited about what. Like in 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 Scandinavia, they love Andy Sedaris. They couldn't get enough of Hard Ticket to Hawaii, which okay. is exciting because it's one of the dumbest rah rah American things you can think of in our catalog. <laughs> That's interesting. That reminds me of like back in the punk days. You'd have these people, these bands that would sell like twenty people in the U.S. And mm-hmm. they would get booked to play in Japan to like sell out crowds of like thousands of people. And they'd get there, you're like, how? Anyways, um, I love that. Well, okay, I, look, th- those are the questions I had. I mean, I think we, we've, we've spoken for almost an hour. Uh, I, I, I easily do an hour more. I really enjoyed talking with y'all. Um, is there anything that I'm not asking that I should have asked that you want people to know about? I mean, I feel like we covered a, a pretty good here uh, intro to Agfa and kind of what's going on, but is there anything I missed? Uh, I think um, we are always open for donations and, you know, we survive on donations. We are a nonprofit, which sets us apart from every other distributor and home video label. Um, so 
if you like what we do and you enjoy the releases and you have extra room to help us out even more, you can always donate to us at AmericanGenreFilm.com. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that. We'll put it on the site too um, when we post this, but okay. Well, uh, yeah, thank you so much for making some time to do this. This meant a lot to me personally. And I think people on Reddit, are y'all on Reddit much? Not too uh, much. No. Yeah, no, it's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll represent y'all there. <laughs> um, the, um, the Reddit community always gets excited when, when people are talking about Agfa releases. I feel like a lot of people there in the, there's, there's a particular sub called Boutique Blu-ray, if mm -hmm. you ever want to on that um, anytime there's a mention of an ag for release you find the the pockets of people that are that are uh you know close to y'all because they always come out and, and toot the horn and kind of champion these releases so oh, that's uh, really nice I, thank you yeah. oh yeah for sure uh cool well yeah thanks we'll uh uh i'm sure we'll talk before long but uh i'll keep supporting y'all and uh keep doing what you're doing thank you and thank you for your support and thank you for reaching out to have us on the show we appreciate it yeah, yeah. of course I I, I, I personally enjoy talking with anyone who's documenting the current home video world because I don't know, in some time we'll be very nostalgic for discs. Bat pussy. <laughs> Bat pussy. You know, just uh, a, something really fantastic happened with Blu ray is that it's somehow because DVD was making so much money in the 2000s and the amount of money that blu-ray would make is considerably less it just tightened the industry on the specialty side and it really shook out people who didn't care mm -hmm. and it only left the people who cared to kind of take care of what remained of home video and it's it's a really special group of people to get to work with no to to see their to see their own labels grow like uh, the bands thing is very apt, and it's up to you to figure out who all the the band metaphors are. <laughs> yeah, I, Louis Justin from Massacre Video. He mentioned one time that just he's like, I don't know. There's probably 15 people at the top of the industry right now in terms of like the boutique world. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. he was kind of looking, but it does feel like that. It feels like there's a real family and kind of camaraderie. And uh, anyways, it's a, it's a joy to get to speak with y'all. So thanks for that. Mm -hmm.